I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to get a running start into the parable of the unforgiving servant, which begins in verse 21 and goes down to the end of the chapter. We're going to spend a long introduction. I would flunk uh, preaching 101 if I was back in seminary some weeks. No introduction this week. Uh, you're going to say uncle at some point during the introduction. But this is one of those parables that if we don't get the context, what comes right before it, then Peter's question and even Jesus' teaching won't make quite as much sense. So we're going to back up to verse 15, read down through verse 27, and just uh, look at those verses. We'll call this part one of the parable of abundant uh, forgiveness. So before we read it and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we take a look at Matthew 18 and this great parable, we ask that you would show us. Show us, reveal to us in our hearts anew and afresh just how great your forgiveness of us is in Christ your Son. And then show us this week and next week, indeed, what that entails, what that requires of us, what you have laid upon us as a responsibility to forgive other people. And so we pray that through the study of this parable, we would grow in our forgiveness and in the realization of just how much we've been forgiven. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. All right, Matthew 18 at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them, excuse me, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then... Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. We're just going to keep reading to the end. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you 
if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So brothers and sisters uh, in Christ of Hope Church, and everyone with us here uh, this morning, the immediate context right before the parable of the unforgiving servant uh, is uh, what we would often call a passage on church uh, discipline. And if you take a look at verse 15, Matthew 18, uh, church discipline or the process of it, it begins when someone would sin against uh, someone else. So when a brother sins against you, this is not dealing with sins committed against another believer by an unbeliever, but this is like uh, how a family resolves sins, right? This is uh, the inner circle. This is life in the church. Okay, This is how the Lord would have us deal with sins. And I want to point out that we should keep in mind here that sins will be committed against us by fellow believers. If they weren't, Jesus wouldn't teach us this. So we can rightly expect that during the course of our life inside God's family, our fellow siblings in Christ will offend us as we will them. They will sin against us, we will sin against them. And my guess is that the general course of our handling of each other's sins will be governed by 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. My guess is that that's how we will handle most or many of the offenses made against us, and it's how others will handle our offenses against them. We just cover over them in love. We say, yeah, I'm a fellow sinner. I get it. I love them. I'm just going to overlook this. On we go. There's, it's hardly even a speed bump in the road. But there comes a time when sin is significant enough, big or grievous enough, or frequent or habitual enough as to offend and give us alarm that we need to deal with it. That we or a believer we may have offended say, hey, look, I, I think this has to be handled. Like, I really need to work through this. I want to work through this. I can't just overlook it. And if that's the case, then Jesus actually walks us through what this looks like. Notice verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So again, the principle is just keep the sin as small as it was committed, right? Like don't, don't talk about it. Don't gossip about it. Don't go and uh, let the whole world know that someone sinned against you. Instead, just go personally to your brother or sister. Just go talk to him about it. Hey, you said this, you did this, or... This took place, and I am asking that you would repent of it. Like, I'm, I'm deeply hurt by it. I'm offended by it. And if they repent, you've gained your brother or sister, right? The language of reconciliation. Okay, we're, we're good. I forgive you. Thank you for repenting, and, and let's move forward, and we can enjoy this great, sweet fellowship. The goal of confrontation in Matthew 18 is always reconciliation, right? Gaining back that relationship. But Jesus goes on in verse 16 to tell us that, hey, it's possible that maybe your brother or sister won't listen to us, right? Or maybe someone will confront us with it and we'll say, no, nah, I'm not going to repent of that. I don't think that was sinful. So then he says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, hey, again, not blowing this up, gossiping, hey, tell the world about this, but grab a couple other people, maybe one or two people. And go to your brother or sister and say, hey, again, I, 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 I want to deal with this. I want to work through this. I want our relationship to be restored. I really need you to repent of X, Y, and Z. Maybe one thing, maybe five things, but they're listed. They're laid out. So it's not some nebulous thing. 
but it's one believer telling another, you did this, you said this, etc. please repent. And other people are there to establish the charges, right? To listen, to witness this so that there's clarity that both sides can be helped both in explaining and also in understanding. And indeed, if the person repents, then praise the Lord. That's wonderful. But if the charges have been established and if the witnesses and the offended continue to believe that this is a matter needing to be handled for the sake of the sinner and the sake of the relationship and the sake of the well-being of the church and the person doesn't repent, then verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now tell it to the church. This is usually making the elders aware of what has transpired, what sin is being dealt with. It's kind of in the hands of the church then to walk through things. And if the offender won't listen to the admonishment, to uh, the rebuke, to the continued appeals from the elders, um, then the elders proceed with church discipline. And if the person won't repent, Jesus says, here's the ultimate. Treat him like a Gentile and tax collector, which is you treat them like they're not a believer. In other words, the sin is so grievous, so great, so habitual or whatever the case may be, that on account of their lack of repentance of it, you're not, we're not guessing here, right? This is not like, oh, I sped and I don't think it's that big of a deal. I got to speed into etc. No, your profession of faith is actually called into a question. We're wondering, and the church is saying, we don't think that you're a believer at this point, given the fruit of your life. Nobody can know the heart. But unrepentance is the evidence of someone who doesn't believe the mark of a Christian is what? Repentance. So there's no sin that actually removes us from church life. No sin so significant except that of what? Unrepentance. No more sorrow for sin. And there's actually a case study of this in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2, where a, a man is sleeping with his father's wife, probably his stepmom. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 uh, says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And he said, verse 3, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Just sort of skipping right to the last step of church discipline. Now, what good does it do to remove uh, this member? Verse 5 of, of 1 Corinthians 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And then two reasons are given for why this should happen. To save the man's spirit in the day of the Lord, right? Let him go through this pain. Put him outside the fellowship of the church so that that pain and that rejection, that difficulty that he'll feel in his flesh, right? The destruction of his flesh is what it's called. Let him feel that so that he'll be brought to repentance, Lord willing. And then on the last day, his spirit will be saved. And then it's also to protect the rest of the church. Verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So part of that is put the person outside because if you don't, then that leaven, that yeast, like it goes through bread, other people in the church may think, hey, it's not a big deal to follow after the Lord. We can all just kind of go live however we please and participate in any sins we feel like doing, right? And so for the sake of the church, put the person out. What's interesting is that in 2 Corinthians 2, likely the same person, verses 6 through 8, were told this, for such a one, speaking likely of that man who was put out in 1 Corinthians 5, 
for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. What was the punishment? Putting him out. So you should rather turn to forgive. Catch that. Forgive him now. Comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Wow. Forgiving. Welcoming back. Right? You've gained back your brother or your sister in the Lord. That was the goal. That's wonderful. It took the ultimate remedy. But the goal was accomplished. Now Peter heard this. The disciples heard this. Peter spoke up, which is normal. <laughs> and in verse 21, he came up to the Lord. He comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So let's say this happens a lot where I go to confront him and he repents. And then the same day I do it again and he repents. And then maybe the next time it happens, and I need to bring two or three others or, or this goes all the way to the church. How often do we have to keep doing this? with a person up to seven times. And then Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, numerous commentators point something out here regarding Peter, because it, Peter may have come across as stingy, but actually what Peter says here is very generous. He's picked up on the mercy ministry of Jesus. Rabbi Jose Ben Hanina said, he who begs forgiveness from his neighbor must not do so more than three times. Standard. Rabbi Jose Ben Yehuda said, if a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. The fourth time, they don't forgive. That was common Jewish rabbinical understanding in Jesus' day. Forgive three times, not four. So when Peter says forgive seven, he's like more than doubling forgiveness. Again, Peter is extending a lot of grace. And Peter knows something, right? What does he know? Why is he asking the question? He knows, and he's likely already experienced and been through, and I'm sure all of us in this room have been through it too, where we are either sinned against or we sin against someone else not just once or twice or three times, but four, five, six, seven, eight, right? Ad nauseum, maybe even in one day. And Peter's already envisioning, yeah, how often do we have to do this? Is there a limit where we finally say, nope, I'm cutting you off? And Jesus makes it very clear. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now your translation probably has either 77 times or 70 times seven, 490. But in any case, it's almost universally accepted. That the point is not that once 77 times is reached, you don't forgive them the 78th. Or once 490 is reached, you stop there and don't give them the 491st. Rather, the number seven in the Bible is the number for completion, perfection, wholeness. So what Bible students almost universally acknowledge is that when Jesus says 77 times or 70 times seven, it means there's no limit to it, Peter. Every time they repent, you forgive. Hands down, no questions asked. If it's the 1,051st time, you forgive. And you just keep on forgiving, even as they will keep on forgiving you. And Luke says something similar, Luke 17, 3 to 4. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, why is... Jesus launching into this parable. Isn't it enough that he said, 
We have to forgive limitlessly when our brother or sister repents. Isn't it enough that he said that and just laid it out? Shouldn't that be enough? And we'd probably all reply, yes. (laughs) But Jesus knows something, right, about how we are wired. He knows the power of a story and the power of a parable. He knows forgiving someone over and over and over again and then doing it again the next day and the next day for the rest of our lives is a hard task. It's challenging. And he knows how prone we are to become weary of forgiveness. So he puts the forgiveness of our brothers and sisters in perspective. And this is going to be, I hope, a mind-blowing perspective. Because forgiveness can seem to us like a hurdle impossible to be overcome after a while. But when Jesus puts it in perspective, all of a sudden, it's a teeny tiny hurdle compared to what we've been forgiven. So I want us to notice three things in the parable. We're only going to get to the first point today, the second and third points next week. First, the magnitude of God's forgiveness. How big is it? Secondly, the necessity of our forgiveness or Christian forgiveness, the requirement laid on us to forgive. And then thirdly, the torture of refusing forgiveness. So first, and this is all we'll cover today, the magnitude of God's forgiveness. Therefore, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So the king had a servant. This servant must have been entrusted with some incredible money or wealth. The servant would have been someone Uh, like Herod or Pilate, if you want to think in the Roman terms, a governor of a particular region in Rome or a governor over a very significant portion of Rome that could have been where the people's minds went when they heard Jesus begin the parable. And we're told that the person lost 10,000 talents. And Simon Kistemacher says this, the word for 10,000 has an underlying basic meaning of that which is numberless, countless, infinite. The word 10,000, biggest number in the Greek. Moreover, the talent in those days was the largest denomination in the monetary system. So you have the largest Greek number coupled with the largest amount of monetary measurement. By comparison, Herod the Great's annual revenue from his entire kingdom was about 900 talents. That's it. The areas of Judea, Idumea, and Samaria paid 600 talents in taxes annually. Galilee and Perea paid 200 talents And Botanea with Trachonitis as well as Aranitis paid 100 talents. Clearly, the financial minister owed his master a tremendous sum. He owed what is commonly regarded as an unpayable debt. Now, if you have your ESV study Bible, some of you do, they actually have a great footnote trying to help us understand how big this debt was. Here's the note. One talent was about 20 years worth of work for a day laborer. Now, in our day, if you figured a 40-hour work week, $15 an hour, boy, inflation's really hitting, a laborer would earn 30 grand a year and a talent would equal $600,000. Thus, 10,000 talents would be about 6 billion. And if a day laborer were to try to work that debt off, it would take him roughly 200,000 years of work just to make that much money or about 2,666 lifetimes if he lived every life to 75 years old. So so what do we make of this 10,000 talents? It's just unpayable. And that's Jesus' point. The point, maybe not necessarily, will be to, to, to add this all up and try and figure out if you can pay it. He just picks a number out there that's so big, everybody in his hearing would have said, no way, don't even try. 
Like you could get all your buddies together and try and come up with that amount of money. You're never going to pull it off. It's just an unpayable debt. R.C. Sproul, to use exact language, said he owed his master zillions of dollars. There's a great reference to how big it is. Now, verse 25, he could not pay, we're told. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Well, Leviticus 25, 39 and other passages in the Old Testament make reference to uh, this. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. And you shall, then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan. It was not uncommon that if you were severely in debt, bankrupt, you would sell yourself uh, into the hands of your creditor to whom you owed all the money, and you would just work for them, you and your whole family, whoever was part of your family. And you would work for them until the debt was all paid off. So the king is going to sell his servant uh, until he pays everything that he owes and his family is included in the selling. Well, verse 26, the servant hears this and he's shattered. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, this servant was no dummy. He could do very basic math in his head and it didn't take him long to figure out that this wasn't going to end well. There is no way. I can pay this off. But he says he's going to try, right? So there's the language of fell on his knees is literally to kiss the ground and falling down before a superior. It's the language sometimes used to worship. He says, have patience with me, be long suffering toward me. Delay your wrath. Delay the reckoning. Please kick the can down the road. Give me some time. I will pay you everything. Now, it's impossible, but catch what he's doing. He's remorseful. He's repentant. He's already started to think, yep, I've done wrong, and I need you to be patient with me, and I'll do the best I can to make this right, right? That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But then verse 27 stands out. Something drastic happens here. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, out of pity is the language of splunk nidzamai, which is the Greek word for inner parts, like heart, liver, lungs, kidney, inner organs, verbed. It's the inner parts, which was regarded as the seat of emotions, turned from a noun into a verb. And so out of his very inner being, this king felt and went out to in compassion and sympathy and empathy with great feeling and emotion. He had pity on him, gut level compassion to feel deep emotion, such as sympathy and empathy. The king was moved. He looked at the servant in front of him and he saw there ain't no way out. And he saw that his wife and kids, they're going to be affected by this too. He had, he had a big heart. And he looked at this predicament and said, unless I'm merciful, this guy's life is just destroyed unto eternity, basically. He has no way out of this. And so he released him, which is the language of to let go, to dismiss, 
The term implies the release or canceling of an existing bond. I'm going to let you go from your indebted relationship to me and forgave him the debt. And the word forgave is to send away, to release, to let go. He let the debt go. Now notice what happened to the 10,000 talents. What happened to the 6 billion? Where did it go? Well, it's gone, right? The, the, the 6 billion is out of the equation. The man doesn't have to pay it back to the king. The servant doesn't anymore. He's free. But I want you to keep your eyes on that 10,000 talents because it doesn't just disappear. The king lost it. The king incurs the loss now. Right? The king doesn't get 10,000 talents back. The king's out it. Six billion dollars down the drain when the king forgave the servant. The king was saying this, I will incur and swallow that debt. I'll take the loss for you. I will not make you pay the debt. I will incur the cost of your debt. I will take the loss so that you can go free. Now, for those of us who are younger, as some of us kids, we can understand this very easily. Right? Let's say your mom and dad get this china set that was handed down to you from your grandparents. Maybe it's been in the family for 150 years and you take a look at these china plates, right? They're white, but they're shaped like what? A Frisbee. And you know that you've turned it upside down. It doesn't have the weight of a Frisbee, but it sure does feel like one and it looks like it could fly. And so you throw this china plate back and forth with your other siblings for a while and it's going swimmingly until one of you decides that you're going to drop it. And then it breaks and your parents come home and you run to them and you tell them the devastating news that a china plate which can't be replaced anymore, which no amount of money can actually buy because it's not made anymore, is broken. You tell them that. And what takes place? Your parents, they forgive you. Now, what does that mean for you as the child? You don't have to pay back the plate. You don't even have to try. You're out of debt. What does that mean for your parents? They don't have a plate. They incurred the loss. In other words, forgiveness, beloved, costs. Forgiveness for the one offering it is expensive. It requires letting go of something, not receiving payment or demanding payment for something that you lost. And you're telling the person, I will not make you pay for what you cost me. What you cost me financially, relationally, gossip-wise, reputation-wise, whatever I lost on account of your sin, I'm not going to make you pay for that. I will pay for it. I'll incur the loss. Forgiveness is expensive. Now, what's the point? God is the king. We are the servant. Our sin and rebellion is an unpayable debt. We owe God a debt we can never get out of. It's called our sin. God forgives our debt by incurring the loss, by taking the loss, by taking on the cost of our sin. We owe God an unpayable debt for our sin, beloved. Even if we had only sinned once, remember what our sin is. It's an offense against an infinite God. So one sin merits what? An unpayable debt. And most of us don't have just one sin. We have billions of them. And our debt is massive. And there is no way out of our debt at all. <laughs> we are sinful. God is perfectly holy. And we've got one chance. We've got one opportunity out. We've got one hope. And that hope is this. 
that we go to God in repentance and we say, have patience, have pity, and we repent. And he extends us mercy that we don't believe, that we don't deserve. And he says, I'll let go of the debt. And in the most radical turn of events, that's what God has done for every single one of his people. He has let go of our unpayable debt. In Christ, God made the payment for our sins. Colossians 2, verse 13, God forgave us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what happens with our unpayable debt, all of our sin? Do we have to make payment for it? No. We are off the hook, beloved. We are not required to make any payment for our sins. But catch it, the 10,000 talents didn't just disappear as a number. Yeah, it's gone now. No, the king had to pay for it. Beloved, our sin had to be paid for. God incurred the loss, as it were. He absorbed the cost of letting us go free. And he did that in Jesus Christ at the cross. He's forgiven each of us a debt because Christ paid the debt in our place. The same language that's used of the forgiven here is what Jesus used on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, let them go. Father, release them from the debt. They're clueless. Now, historically, that meant something, right? They don't know what they're doing. They'd find out what they did when the apostles preached to them, right? But there's also something, Father, let them go, forgive them, release them from the debt. In other words, Father, if I'm releasing them from the debt, that means I'm on the hook for their debt. Father, make me pay, not them, which is what the Father and Son had agreed on would happen at the cross from all eternity. Now, I want to just look at three things here. Our sins against God add up to an unpayable debt. In fact, if we could live our lives in such a way as to commit only one sin, like I mentioned, it'd still be an unpayable debt. Our sin is that great. We may not think it's that big, but God says it is, and it's because it's sin against God. If we sin against fellow humans, 100 denarii. If we commit the most grievous sins against fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, 100 denarii. You can come up with a lot of unimaginable sins, right? And how horrible they are. And God compares them to 100 denarii, about three months' wages. More on that next week. Sin against God, unpayable. 10,000 talents, massive problem that none of us can dig our way out of. Beloved, God's putting forgiveness in perspective. When we go out into the world, he demands we forgive. Why? Because we've been forgiven a debt that we could never pay. Imagine having a banker come and forgive our mortgage and say, no problem, just don't worry about it, right? Hundred, two hundred, $300,000 wiped clean. Imagine the horrendousness of walking out there and going to strangle somebody who owed us $10. Horrible. Why? Because the person didn't owe you the money? No, because of the debt we've just been forgiven. How could we leave that and be bitter? This is why, secondly, Paul says in Colossians 3.13, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Notice he puts our forgiveness of each other in perspective. As the Lord's forgiven you, the vertical dimension first, right? 10,000 talents forgiven. That has to inform, it has to govern it has to change every aspect of our relationship with other believers. 
we can never look at forgiving another believer the same way when we learn that we've been forgiven an unpayable debt. In Ephesians 4.32, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So let me ask this, we'll close with this. Who do you need to forgive? Who do I need to forgive? Whose debt do we need to let go of? In our relationships with other believers, what costs do we need to incur and swallow and accept in order to extend them forgiveness because God has swallowed the largest debt ever in the cross of Christ, his son, to extend us forgiveness. If you're not a believer or for thinking about those who aren't that we're going to be talking to, our loved ones, family members, co-workers, a lot of people in the world think that forgiveness is something you earn. You bring something to the table, you merit it. What I want us to see here is that there's only one way that we can get out of our debt with God, and every human being has this debt. We're born with it. We're conceived in it. We come into the world in debt that we can't get out of. And there is only one way that we can get out of it. God's mercy. His compassion and mercy to us in Christ. And so if you sit here this day, not a believer, you're in debt, and you're going to pay. And Let me make no mistake, you're going to pay every last penny. And it will never end. There's one way out. His name is Jesus. And if you trust in him, if you believe in him, if you accept God's mercy towards you in Christ, your debt is paid and you don't have to pay a penny. He will have paid the whole thing. And I strongly encourage you to believe in him, to accept his payment so that you can be delivered from having to pay for the rest of your eternal existence. Let's pray.